The following message is given by Walt Alexander, lead pastor of Trinity Grace Church in Athens, Tennessee. For more information about Trinity Grace, please visit us at trinitygraceathens.com. His wife, and he answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so, the, the, so they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Verse 11, or 10, And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God remains forever. One of the things our family likes to do is to watch reruns of the Andy Griffith show. One episode we watched not too long ago centered around the church picnic and dance. Miss Ellie is new to Mayberry after becoming the new town pharmacist. Upon a visit to the store, Andy finds out that she's not going to the picnic and dance. Andy is shocked. Why would she not go to the dance? I mean, does she not like picnics and dances. He asks himself, and it's all playing out in his mind. And so Andy decides to be a good neighbor and ask her to go with him. And when he asks, she quickly says, I would love to go, or I'd be happy to go with you, Andy. Andy is excited, but as the day goes on, he begins to wonder why she accepted his invitation so quickly. He begins to become convinced that something else is going on. Now, Andy, the widower, begins to relive his day. How come when I walked into the store, she immediately came out to talk? How come she was so happy and smiley when she saw me? How come her coworker Fred casually told told me that she wasn't going to the dance when we hadn't even been talking about it? How come she so quickly agreed to go with me before I had even finished asking? My goodness, he shouts out, I've been hooked like a starving catfish. She's after him. He figures out what's more. She's not, she's not just hooked me into a town dance or a country dance or a city dance. She's hooked me into a church dance. And he says that's because she wants to get me comfortable with being in the church. She wants to get me married. He said nothing worse, he concludes, than a pretty conniving female. Andy believes Miss Ellie is doing nothing less than trying to lure him into marriage. So Andy decides what he's going to do is to outfox her. And if you've seen the episode, it's totally great. He says, there's nothing, there's only, there ain't but one way to outfox a hunter but to put them on the scent of other game. So he goes to several men in the town and tells them that Miss Ellie's been talking about them. 
talking about how handsome they are. And so these three little guys just run in there and begin trying to woo Miss Ellie away. And before long, she realizes Andy's planned. And in the end, his whole plan falls apart and Miss Ellie figures out what he is doing. Ellie wasn't try- Miss Ellie wasn't trying to get him married after all. She was just being nice. This morning, we're going to consider the topic of marriage. And when it comes to marriage, sometimes I wonder if we've fallen into the trap that Andy thinks he fell into. The wedding industry cashes in $50 billion a year in the United States. It encourages us to believe that the wonder of marriage is our story posted up on thenot.com and our engagement and our ceremony. It leads us to believe that the meaning of marriage is found in our happiness, our contentment, our satisfaction. And when that happens, marriage becomes little more than a human contract. We enter and exit as we please. We marry when we want, and when it isn't what we want any longer, we divorce. We fall into the trap of a human contract, marriage. No wonder the divorce industry rakes in $12 billion a year. In our passage, Jesus takes up the topic of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Not every pastor's favorite passage to preach on. But as he does, it becomes very clear that the Pharisees' understanding of marriage is a little different than our culture's. Rather than merely answering their question about divorce, Jesus uncovers for them the wonder of marriage. As he speaks, the Lord speaks to us. The Lord has brought this passage to us this morning and is addressing us. And as we, all of us come to this passage with a bit of baggage, maybe from your past, maybe from your family's past, maybe from your present, I want to encourage you to press in. See what God might say to you, say to us. In a word, where we're going is let marriage be held in honor because it's established by God and for God's glory. Let marriage be held in honor because it was established by God and for God's glory. Point one is mankind is created male and female by God. Mankind is created male and female by God. Before we discuss Jesus' answer to the Pharisees' question, I want to look at the context a little bit more. Now, Jesus, as we saw in verse 1, he was in Capernaum. We've seen a lot go on in Capernaum. He leaves there. He begins making his way south through the region of Judea beyond the Jordan to Jerusalem. That's where he's marching, as we know, as we've seen, as we've gone through this passage. When he gathers a crowd, again, he he teaches. That's what we've seen. uh, uh, Jesus teaches all throughout the Gospel of Mark again and again and again. He doesn't tell us as much about what he taught, but he just shows us him teaching. The group of Pharisees come up to test him. Now, we've seen this charade already before we've seen this game. The Pharisees are coming to him not to to learn something from him or to get information from him. They're testing him to see if they can lure him into a trap. So they ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Look at verse 2. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, Now, we may think, you may think, what kind of trap is that? That seems like a pretty straightforward question, a pretty simple question. But here's the trap that Jesus was stumbling, or they were seeking to stumble Jesus into, push Jesus into, is all Jews agreed that divorce was permitted for adultery. 
or in certain scenarios, it was in, in cases of adultery, divorce was permitted. Jews would have uh, uh, agreed to that, and as they point out, the law did too. But, but some argued that divorce was permitted in other situations. And so, so, the, so, so, so they're kind of in, in the first century, there are these different Jewish sects that, that said divorce was only permitted for adultery. There are other sects that said divorce, divorce was permitted for other things. And so they're trying to get Jesus to kind of be, be tugged back and forth between one of these and to fail in articulating what was and what wasn't against the law. And so since all agree that divorce was permitted in cases of adultery, they're really asking, is, divorce, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for anything, for any matter? That's really, when you, when you get to the context, that's actually the, the question they're trying to ask. Matthew 19, a parallel account, that's exactly the question they do ask. Pharisees came to him, tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce one's wife? for any cause. Do you see? But rather than answer their question, Jesus says, what did the law say? And they say, Moses said, you can write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus says, you're right, essentially. Deuteronomy 24 does provide legal guidelines for divorce. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But that's not all that Jesus says. Before answering their question fully, Jesus lays out the will of God for mankind and for marriage from the beginning. First thing Jesus says essentially is mankind is created male and female by God. Look down there in verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and and female, Jesus, Jesus takes us back to the beginning of creation, the beginning of our Bible, Genesis. And Genesis is vitally important for so many, so many reasons. It, it unveils to us an incredible vision of God. It, it sets a trajectory for the Bible. It calls us to wonder at who we are. Francis Schaeffer says it like this. In some ways, these chapters in Genesis are the most important ones in the Bible. For they put man in his cosmic setting and show him his peculiar uniqueness. They explain man's wonder and yet his flaw. Now, we don't use the word cosmic so often, but, but, uh, but the opening chapters are important because they put us in a cosmic setting. They, they put us before the only God. They, they, they put us right before this God. They put us before this, this world of countless stars and galaxies and landscapes and open skies and mountain streams, all these things dreamt up and brought forward from God's imagination, completely brilliant and filled with wonder. And that's our cosmic setting, but they also bring out this peculiar wonder, this peculiar uniqueness. At the climax of creation, Jesus is referencing Genesis 127, God made man and woman in his image. We have that for you. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female. He created them. If you remember Genesis 1, Everything is prose. Everything's this is happening this day, and, and then it was the evening, and then it's the next day, and then it's the evening, and then it's the next day, and, and on and on and on. But then when God creates man, he breaks out into poetry. God created man in his image, in the image of God. He created them male and female. He created them. Re three references in one verse to God creating. There's so many words for make and shape and fashion in Hebrew, but there's only one for create. And each time this word is used, only God is a subject. So God intervenes. 
powerful way. It is God, and he creates us in his image. There's so much we could say here. There's one thing we must say is that everything else in creation was created after its own kind, but mankind was created in the image and likeness of God, utterly unique, utterly unlike any other creature under heaven. I remember years ago, one of, the, one of the times I learned about the image of God in deepest way was, was caring for Kim's mom through Alzheimer's. So our culture essentially says, you're only valuable to us if you hit the bottom line, if you contribute. That's why we put older people in nursing home out of our view. It's not like every other culture in the world. And, and Kim and I were trying to care for her mom through Alzheimer's and, and, and continue to celebrate the dignity she had as the faculties she had continued to fall away. That's the dignity and values there, not because of what you bring to our economy, but because of what God has stamped on your life. God creates in his image, and when God created mankind in, the image of, of, in his image, he created them male and female. Now, important to our text, I'm going to make two little sub-points here. First is, or A, is sexuality, and I'm going to unpack this. So sexuality is not randomly assigned but carefully incorporated into the image of God. Sexuality is not randomly assigned but carefully incorporated into the image of God. Sexuality, that's just a way of saying our masculinity and femininity is part of what it means to be created in God's image. Biblically, the real you is not separate from the physical you, the sexual you. It's very common right now for people to speak in such a way as that who they are is distinct from who they, how they were created. You hear statements like, I am a woman trapped in a man's body. Like that there's a separation between the soul, spirit of me, and the body of me. Now, the, scripture, the Bible never speaks that way. We are embodied spirits always bound together and so we can't speak like that either. Who we are is tied to how we are created physically. What this means is that gender is not randomly assigned. Gender is fixed and set by God down to the core of who we are. Being made male and female in his image. In a popular TED talk, cardiologist Paula Johnson says, every cell has a sex. And what that means is that men and women are different down to the cellular and molecular level. It means that we're different across all of our organs, from our brains to our hearts, our lungs, our joints. Gender is created by God, and it's bound to us in such a wonderful way. So in the midst of so much confusion and distortions about gender, we must recover the wonder of being made male and female in God's image. What this means is that gender, the gender we possess, is not an accident. It's not assigned arbitrarily. We're not trapped in it. It's not random. You're in the image of God. Uniquely, wonderfully. So we can grieve some of the distortion going on right now. But we have the privilege of recovering what this means, and that would take like six weeks of messages, so I can't do it all right now, but we also have the privilege of calling people who are tripping over this confusion to the true freedom that they long for in the gospel. 
Second subpoint B is complementarity is not an optional extra, but carefully incorporated into the image of God. Complementarity is not an optional ex- extra, but carefully incorporated into the image of God. I don't always do subpoints like this, but when I do, they're very confusing. So uh, <laughs> the word complement there with an E does not refer to saying something nice, but to, to saying something or, or to, to, to uh, doing something that completes something else. Compliment. I always think of Jerry Maguire. I don't know if y'all remember this. This really dates me. At the end of that movie, you say, you complete me. You know, uh, you're the perfect fulfillment of what I need or whatever like that. That's actually, that's, that's compliment in that way. God has created mankind, male and female, to complement one another. So that's what I mean, complementarity, the, 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 this, these differences that complement is woven into creation into the image of God. Now, that's important because God, though he's referred to in masculine language, God is neither male nor female. God is a spirit, as catechism would say, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Therefore, being male is not, be, is not better or of a higher order or greater, in, in which would be especially provoking the patriarchal world. Mankind, therefore, has created male and female to image God together, complementing one another. Now, this is wonderful. Both male and female, therefore, are created in the image of God with God-given value and dignity and worth. Just like I was talking about with Kim's mom. Every person, equal worth before God. And yet both are created in the image of God. Though both are created in the image of God, they're created male and female. Different physically, but biblically also given different tasks in the home and in the church. And all this is to complement. Now, aren't you so grateful that this is the world God has made? One, not of uniformity, but of diversity and beauty. In so many ways, the differences that complement among us, you see that type of unity and diversity in the Godhead. God is three and one, and yet one and three. One of my sons, or one of my children asked me the other night at dinner, how is it that there's one true God and yet there are three? I guess you'd like to know my answer. It was a doozy trying to figure that out. But, but God's woven this everywhere. God's brought about differences to complement. So in the midst of so many attempts to flatten these distinctions, we must recover the wondrous differences between being male and being female. We must continue to reject the distortions, but we must reject attempts to erase these distinctions. That's the wonderful privilege we have. Point two Marriage is the lifelong union of one man and one woman by God. Marriage is a lifelong union of one marriage, one woman and one man by God. Look at verse 7. Jesus continues his little speech here. And he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast his wife. Two shall become one flesh. Jesus jumps from 120, Genesis 1.27 to Genesis 2.24. You probably remember the story. Everything in the garden is good, but God comes to Adam and says, one thing is not good. It's not good for you to be alone. God promises to make a helper for him. And God bring, uh, yeah, before God makes him a helper, God brings to him all the creatures kind of in this pageant-like thing. They kind of march out two by two, and Adam names them, and he sees that all of them have a helper, and then he falls asleep after a long day of naming creatures in his God-given role of dominion. 
And while he's asleep, God takes one of his ribs and makes it into a woman and brings her to Adam. Out of something not good, God creates something very good. He creates woman made like him and yet different from him to be a perfectly fit helper for him. And y'all know it. He says, this at last is one of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she is taken out of man. Adam is overwhelmed with wonder because God has brought him not a servant or a chef or a pawn or a prize, but a wife. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother. Genesis 2.24, which we have for you, says, Hold fast his wife, that shall become one flesh. Now, why is Jesus doing this? He wants to help us recover the wonder of marriage. The two become one flesh. Jesus concludes in verse 8, the second half, So they're no longer two, but one. One plus one equals one. It's the biblical math. What it's telling us something very important. Like we're talking about anthropology, we're talking about the way God made man, male and female. And he's saying how we are male and female, our masculinity and, and, and femininity is not for us. Our sexuality is not ours. It's not ours to take and use however we want. Our sexuality, our masculinity and femininity is designed for a purpose. Really, in so many ways, sexuality is like a gift that you've been trusted with. For you're married, this gift is for the Lord. That's what 1 Corinthians 7 says. If you're not, if you're not married, then to render everything to the Lord. Live for the Lord. But if you're married, sexuality becomes a gift you give to your spouse. Unite, unite, one, united together with a person of the opposite sex in marriage. Marriage is the joining one man and one woman together as one flesh. It's so wonderful to see it happen again and again and again. So he's trying to help them recover the wonder. He's also trying to help recover the wonder of who establishes marriage. You know, we might think that our sexuality is what unites us to our spouse in marriage. The man who's called to hold fast to his wife holds fast to her intimately. It's wonderful. That's kind of the way the, the text is written. A man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife at a very horizontal level. You know, they're longer, no longer two but one, but they're together. They're hugging it out or something like that. But then Jesus says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. He's, he's uncovering something here. He's saying this is more than this physical union. This is a, a mis mysterious thing that God does in joining a man and a woman together. While intimacy is the most meaningful expression of marriage, it's not what establishes the union. Marriage is established by God, a miraculous work. When they make covenant together before God, it's not our love stories, our shared interests, or simple serendipity that lies at the bottom of marriage. It's the sovereign providential hand and covenant of God. It's so important to see what's going on. The Pharisees came to him with an understanding of marriage that was little more than a human contract. Something to enter into when it suited them and exit when it didn't. But Jesus doesn't want to leave them with a few more rules. Jesus wants to give them a glimpse of the divine institution of marriage. So many ways, Jesus wants to take them up so they see what marriage is meant to be. He wants to change our view from a human contract to a divine institution. I'll never forget years ago, well, almost 15 years ago, 
my wife and I, we got engaged and we had a few engagement parties. We had one engagement party down in South Carolina. That's where I'm from in South Carolina. And, um, you know, it's just a wonderful evening. We had both fam- all family. So uh, both my mom and dad's family were there as well as Kim's family was there. And just this wonderful evening in my aunt and uncle's house. And, you know, we lived right down the street. So I spent all this time in this house. And, you know, naturally they, they you know, they're doing like, like you do if the party was for you. And so they honored us. They had us eat first. And um, we got our plate. And, you know, it's just like any other house. You're kind of wandering around. And, you know, you're having a lot of people over. So you kind of got tables in every single room. And I remember we wandered into one room uh, to where the dining room table was. And uh, here we are, like two months away from getting married, so happy and elated. And, and we walked into the room, and sitting at the end of the table was my un- great uncle, Buddy, and his wife, Georgianne. At that time, he's probably mid 80s. At that time, his wife had been struggling with all, had been diagnosed. and and dying of Alzheimer's for probably 10 years. And he was sitting there, and they got their food before us, and he's sitting there kind of feeding his wife and wiping her mouth in between bites. And here we are, like newly married, and the juxtaposition couldn't be greater. Newly married, wide open, healthy, and here they are struggling with disease. I said, Uncle Buddy, how you doing? He said, it's hard. The man, a few words. I said, Uncle Buddy, I respect you, man. I respect you. He would change his wife's sheets multiple times every night. Care for her. He said, Walt, I made a covenant. I made a covenant. That's what Jesus is trying to get these guys to see. Marriage is not a human contract. It's a divine institution. It's a lifelong union of one man and one woman by God. Now, I need to do a little aside on Uncle Buddy. Wonderfully, his, his George Ann went on and went to be with the Lord. He got remarried at 91. <laughs> he carried his wife's oxygen down the aisle on the way out. And they laughed about who was going to bury the other. So, just wonderful, wonderful picture of marriage, both of those. Your marriage is more about God than it is about you. If all that's true, it's more about God than it is about your needs, your desires, your happiness, and so on. It's so much better. Your marriage is a miracle. Ray Ortland says it like this. Your imperfect marriage, let's be honest, all of ours are very imperfect. Your imperfect marriage in the world today is as sacred in the sight of God as was the perfect marriage between Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Your marriage is grace from above. Your marriage is a miracle. How else could one plus one equal one? So let marriage be held in honor because it was established by God and for God's glory. Point three, 
Divorce and remarriage are sad realities of life in a fallen world, only permitted in circumstances among Christians. Divorce and remarriage are sad realities of life in a fallen world, only permitted in certain circumstances among Christians. At first glance, it seems like they, the, Jesus doesn't even answer the disciples' question. He teaches them from Genesis 1 and 2, but seems to dodge whether or when divorce is permitted. But it seems to me, what I'll argue, Jesus perm permits divorce and remarriage in certain circumstances in these verses in line with other parts of Scripture. First, Jesus acknowledges that divorce in certain circumstances is permitted when, when he agrees that, that Deuteronomy 24, or that Moses gave a commandment about it. The Pharisee disciples say, Moses said we could write this certificate, send her away. That's from Deuteronomy 24. Now, while marriage was designed by God to be lifelong, as time went on, divorces began to happen. So Deuteronomy 24 is the law. It was part of God's intent to regulate them legally to protect all the parties involved, especially women. Now, what's going on here? I thought God hates marriage, Malachi says. Why would he permit it? And I think John Frame, the, uh, a great theologian, helpfully says, God determined that a prohibition against all divorce would be for fallen people unbearable and therefore counterproductive for good social order. Sin would certainly lead to divorce as it did in the people of Israel. Those weren't the good old days when no problems were happening. The law could not be expected to prevent that, right? The law cannot perfect us, change us. The best thing that the law could accomplish would be to regulate divorce, to mitigate against its oppressiveness, maintain the rights of those cast aside. So that's, that's why that's in the law. No wonder Jesus says this commandment was given by Moses because of your hardness of heart. What he's saying is that marriage was designed to be lifelong, but sin entered the world in Genesis 3, right? And distorted marriage. And gradually, marriage led to divorce. And so, that the law included this to, to regulate those divorces. Now, it seems to me, while Jesus does say the commandment from Moses was because of their hardness of heart, he does not say that that commandment is null and void. Jesus does not, therefore, forbid divorce in every circumstance. Some people would say that. I disagree with them. In agreement with Old Testament teaching, other parts of the New Testament, Jesus permitted divorce for adultery. Matthew 19, the same passage, parallel passage in Matthew. He says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, I know this is a little bit of heavy sledding, but the point being made here is very important. Summed up well by Jay Adams. He says, all divorces in one way or another are caused by sin but not all divorces are sinful. All divorces, in one way or another, caused by sin, but not all divorces are sinful. What he means by that is God, God commanded for marriage to be lifelong, but sin entered the world and divorces began to happen. But not all divorces are sinful because there can be permitted, justified reasons for divorcing your spouse. Biblically, if you divorce your spouse because they committed adultery and you have determined through prayer and counsel that you're no longer able to stay united with them, your divorce is not sinful. It's not a sin for you to get divorced in that circumstance. 
In addition, on the basis of 1 Corinthians 7, if you divorce an unbelieving spouse or one disciplined, former believer disciplined, as an unbeliever because they abandoned the marriage and you've determined through prayer and counsel you're no longer able to stay, stay united with them, your divorce is not sinful. Now, I'm trying to walk through this carefully. Our statement on divorce, what we believe biblically, is the Bible addresses and permits divorce in two specific conditions. I think we have, have it for you. Yeah. The Bible addresses when a believer is permitted to seek a divorce in two specific conditions. If a spouse has committed adultery, engaged in sexual contact with another person, or if an unbelieving spouse has abandoned the marriage. Those are what we see are the permitted reasons for divorce. They're the only permitted reasons for divorce. That means there's many invalid grounds for divorce, like my spouse isn't a Christian. We weren't married in church. I need to get out of this marriage for the sake of my kids. We are no longer in love. I married the wrong person. We were too young. All of those biblically are invalid reasons for divorce. Divorcing for one of those reasons is sinful. Now, all that said, you're not required to divorce in those two conditions. <laughs> I wouldn't advise you to immediately. However, I do believe it's kind of the Lord to permit, to, to permit divorce in certain circumstances, protect victims, children, and eliminate more abuse. Now, all this is a bit sobering, or it should be. Some of you need to be freed from false guilt. You may have divorced your spouse under these conditions, and you're not still married in God's eyes. We believe, I believe on the basis of Scripture, that that, that was not sinful. It's appropriate for you to grieve your divorce, but inappropriate for you to be condemned. I urge you to receive the grace of God in the gospel. Others of you may have begun to feel guilty for a divorce in the past. Perhaps your divorce was not in line with these biblical conditions. If so, there's several steps you need to take, but the first one is to confess your sins and receive forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Jesus did not bring you here to send you home condemned. I want you to receive that. But what about remarriage? New Testament teaching on remarriage is permitted in certain circumstances as well. Now, if you read the end of this passage, verse 11 and 12, Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife marries another, commits adultery with her. And if he, she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So it seems that Jesus is saying remarriage is never permitted. Every time you remarry, you commit adultery against your previous spouse, and I guess the present one as well. Now, obviously, remarriage is, is per, uh, permitted when your spouse dies because the covenant is annulled. But it seems to me that in agreement with this passage, the rest of the New Testament, remarriage is permitted if the divorce is permitted. So what Jesus is not saying, 
uh, 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 he's not saying that, 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 that you, you commit adultery when you divorce your wife because of a permitted reason. Only when you divorce your wife because of an unpermitted reason. So if the divorce is justified biblically, then remarriage is permitted. If the divorce was not justified biblically, then remarriage is not, I believe, biblically permitted. Let me say that again. If the divorce was justified biblically, then remarriage is permitted. If the divorce was not justified biblically, then remarriage is not permitted biblically. Now, that's a hard word. And disciples were grown up in a, in a world where, where it's just a human contract. You just entered and exit as you please. And, and so after Jesus says this, disciples say in Matthew 19, 10, if this, such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. What do you marry the wrong person? Because it's a tall order. If so, what do we do now? <laughs> if you're married, a lot of ways, regardless how you got there, fight for your marriage. One author says your marriage has a lifetime warranty. Now, we all love warranties. I spend lots of money at REI every year because they have a one-year, no questions asked, warranty. And I mean, we all love warranties because don't you just love it when the folks call you about your car warranty? It needs to be straightened out, but God gives you a better warranty than you can imagine. God has given a lifetime warranty for your marriage. He's promised to provide everything you need to be who you're supposed to be and to do everything you're supposed to do in marriage. You may be in a marriage where it's all you can do to not walk out. He has grace. You may be in a marriage where you're, where you're in it, but your hope is deflated so much so that you're just surviving if so, he has more grace. He has grace for the obstacles in your marriage, and he's promised to supply you with all the grace exactly when you need it. You've got to remember, our God is not a God of dead ends. He's a God who delivers people when there's no way out to the Red Sea, the calling down the walls of Jericho, the defeating of the Philistines, the, through the wilderness, through many dangers, toils, and snares, indeed through death because of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lifetime warranty for your marriage, but this lifetime warranty requires that you keep stepping out in faith. No one wakes up one day and decides to ruin their marriage. It's ruined when we slowly fail to watch and pray. Paul Tripp says, watching and praying, we will work to protect our relationship. There are few things more dangerous to a marriage than the, the feeling of arrival. When a couple loses a healthy sense of need, Patterns of laziness and inattention grow. No longer does the couple carry around the sense of the enormity of the task they have undertaken. Marriage is an enormous task, and that's the point. So that you would be dependent on God and not your own wisdom. When we realize the enormity of this task, we'll be desperate. We'll run to the Lord, run to our spouse, and we'll run to our friends for help. Doesn't mean to look pretty. Sometimes a marriage that limps along does one, does, brings much glory to God than one that never has a break. To let marriage be held in honor among all because it was created by God and for God's glory. Let's not fall in a trap. Let's hold on to divine institution. 
If we're married, let's recover the wonder and fight. Now, for, what do, now uh, Pastor, what about if we're not married? I, my hope is that your eyes would be open to see the true wonder of marriage. A lot of catalogs, a lot of magazines on the racks and Instagram accounts dedicated to a false, fading wonder. But this is spectacular. And I hope today you're encouraged to know how to pray for your spouse, how to pray for marriage, and know how to help friends that are married pressing on in all of this. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for these words. Thank you for the privilege of sitting under your word. Thank you that within one text we have such a grand view of your purpose for our life, purpose for our marriages, the wonder of living for you in this world. We pray that you'd open our eyes more and more, that our marriages would be conformed more and more to this picture of your great love for us in and through the gospel. We thank you. We, we commit ourselves to you, Lord. We want to fight with all we have to protect this institution, protect our marriages for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message given by Walt Alexander, lead pastor of Trinity Grace Church in Athens, Tennessee. For more information about Trinity Grace, please visit us at trinitygraceathens.com.